in every field, but especially in enterprise, opportunity comes at industry inflection points. I think the present and the future of open source is building communities. Open source, in my mind, means less and less a bunch of software written in some language and more and more people, people that work together to achieve a common goal. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready podcast, Grant sits down with Loris Deggioani, co-founder and CTO of Sysdig. Loris is a pioneer in the world of open source, having been one of the creators of Wireshark, the network protocol analyzer now being used by tens of millions. They discuss Loris's early days building open source network analyzers, which would eventually lead to Wireshark and an acquisition by Riverbed Technologies. At Riverbed, Loris talks of his initial entry into the world of enterprise software and the lessons that he took away, such as the importance of product management and building products for the customer instead of just instinct. Loris goes on to talk about the creation of Sysdig and why he decided to bet on containerization and Kubernetes in their early days. This leads to a discussion about the mindset necessary to create a compelling vision in tech and the gambles that come along with that. Finally, they discuss the future of open source and the communities that will inevitably support that software. This was a really fun episode to create, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did making it. All right, Loris, thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so let's dive right in. Like, tell us a little bit about how you know you kind of got into enterprise software and kind of what your background is. Boy, my story is uh, actually pretty long. That's great. Let's hear it. <laughs> Starts um, actually at this point over twenty years ago because the way I got into software and enterprise software was uh, originally through my uh, graduation thesis the project that was given to me uh, when I was still in Italy. So as a background, I am the founder and CTO of Sysdig, but Sysdig is my second company. So uh, I assume uh, that we'll go in, into the details of Sysdig later, but uh, my first company was called Case Technologies and was the commercial entity behind an open source network analyzer called Wireshark. Actually, I started working on Wireshark, as I was saying, when I was in school, when I was at Politecnico di Torino. And uh, this started because uh, my professors in the computer networking class, Silvano Gai, decided that uh, the best way to teach computer networks to students was to let uh, the students observe the network traffic. So essentially give a network analyzer 
to all of the students. With the only problem, the network analyzers at the point were commercial only, very expensive, and very often hardware-based. So it was uh, absolutely unfeasible to have essentially one for each desk in the lab so that students could just, you know, capture some network traffic and see what happened. So yes, me and the other uh, students to start working on building an open source uh, network analyzer. And uh, the first thing that you need to do, of course, we had Windows in the labs. And the first thing that needed to be done was uh, to build uh, a packet capture driver for Windows. So a piece of software that would allow a Windows workstation to be connected to a network and and collect all of the traffic, like uh, sniffing all of the traffic on that network. That project was called WinPickup and uh, was essentially the first open source uh, networking packet capture driver for Windows. And by the time I got uh, my degree six months later, it was... uh, generating more traffic than the rest of the university combined. <laughs> so that was noticed inside and outside the university and initially got me essentially an offer to continue staying with the university and doing a PhD. And then later on spawned my, my first company called Case Technologies, which was started in 2005. That's amazing. Um, okay, so Wireshark, I think, is probably the more well-known. Is, is that right? Is that kind of the more well-known project that came out of it? Yes. So let's continue the story. What happened? Yeah. What happened is that uh, while doing my PhD on this Win pickup, on this package capture driver for, for Windows, this guy called Jerry Combs in Kansas City had built an open source network analyzer for Solaris called Ethereal. This was uh, 2001, something like that. Gerald saw that uh, I had... Uh, finally made it possible to essentially capture packets from Windows and saw that I had ported TCP dump to Windows using this technology. And so I decided to make a Windows version of Ethereal that would be based on on WinPickup. And that caused the overnight uh, explosion of both Ethereal and uh, WinPickup. So these projects kept growing for a few years until when I moved to the United States, uh, I, I was invited essentially as a PhD uh, visitor student to California, to UC Davis. And uh, while I was there, essentially, I told Gerald, why don't we start a company together, you know, and, and we commercialize this. And uh, Ethereum at the point was uh, extremely well known and was a de facto open source network analyzer that everybody was starting using. And so the idea was, why don't we create a company that can essentially build products uh, around uh, Ethereal and around WinPickup? The only problem was we didn't uh, own the brand and the website domain of uh, Ethereal. This was owned by Gerald's previous employer. And we were, at that point, uh, poor, not far from being out of school, unprepared for running businesses and unequipped for a negotiation, essentially, to acquire these assets to start the company. So what did we do? In uh, May of 2016, we forked the Ethereal project. We renamed it into Warshark. We told the community, we'll keep working on this. We're building a company around this. We'll have our back, but uh, the project is moving. Ethereal will stay there, but we won't maintain it 
uh, anymore. And uh, Wireshark uh, is the new, you know, open source network analyzer. And that started as a simple branch of Ethereum. And then, you know, Wireshark is still what we have now, 14 years later, still thriving with millions of users. And uh, as you probably know, has grown quite a bit since then. To give uh, people context, you know, maybe not, not everybody's uh, technical or, or, or into network packets, but uh, Wireshark at this point is, is a tool with uh, tens of millions of users in the world and hundreds of thousands of monthly download. And everybody that does anything with a computer network uh, uh, ranging from uh, troubleshooting, security, forensics, uh, protocol development, uh, equipment installation, everybody you know that does anything with the network uses Wireshark. And uh, that was born just because you know we had to change the name of a tool because we couldn't own the assets of the tool. So that's the power of, of open source, if you want. I love that. That's amazing. And what was your co-founder's name for the Wireshark with Jared? Gerald Combs. Okay, great. So you met and you know you had both been working on these sort of independent open source projects. Your projects were complementary, and so you formed together to create Wireshark. Mm-hmm. And did you start the company around it at exactly at that point? Like, is that when Case was launched? We started the company together with uh, another co-founder called John Bruno, which uh, is uh, the professor who invited me as a PhD student to UC Davis. So it was interesting because. Uh, I had never had a job. I mean, I was still a student before while John had uh, spent his whole career in academia and was uh, essentially a tenured professor. But neither of us nor Gerald had any experience at all in business. And uh, that was really, really the the very first uh, job that I had was starting a company. So I always find it uh, unique that uh, the first time somebody gave me a salary for working was uh, years later after my company was acquired, essentially. And at the <laughs> point, I became an employee of, a, of another company. But uh, I started essentially case just out of my PhD. And uh, I started it with absolutely zero experience. Myself and my co-founder, absolutely zero experience in anything related to business, especially enterprise business. Uh, and for the same reason, as you can imagine, we started the company without investors. No one for sure would have been crazy enough to give us money at that point. So this was a truly, you know, like old school, no investment, no VC kind of bootstrap company that uh, survived and, and grew Probably more like because of miracles than actual, you know, strategy or skills <laughs> by, by the founders. But you had technical acumen, and you had all these people using Wireshark, and so I'm guessing some number of those were companies who were asking you for. Were they doing like kind of support contracts? Were you doing like? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. So uh, we had uh, yeah the technical skills. We had uh, a big community that we were bringing with us, which. Uh, Again, it's a very interesting lesson that I learned. The fact that uh, even when you're giving away your software for free and you do that for years, you are creating value, you know? 
and you are creating, if your software is a quality and you, you treat your community well, you're creating essentially a, an ecosystem, a community that then uh, will stay with you when you start a company and when you start selling products uh, or services. Because the way we started uh, definitely was uh, by doing consultancy and selling services. You know, when you don't have uh, an investment from uh, VC and you want to bring in income, typically you leverage uh, your skills and your intellectual property to offer services to other companies. In particular, the way we started that adventure was in the avionics space. So networks, computer networks for airplanes. And in mm. particular, we participated to the uh, Airbus A380 development, but especially we were pretty heavily involved in the Boeing 787 uh, development and uh, the complexity of uh, these modern airplanes that have uh, proper networking and uh, you know hubs and switches sure. in the airplane instead of just having cables that connect every single device that need to talk to another device. So there was essentially an element of complexity in that industry that was uh, matching our skills very well. And for the first couple of years, essentially, we brought revenue to the company largely by doing this kind of consultancies and growing essentially this consultancy business to bring enough money to pay for modest salaries for us and to invest uh, into hiring employees that then we could in turn direct to help us build our own products that we started selling a couple of years later. And then Riverbed came knocking and... Did you talk a little bit about what happened there? So we were miraculously uh, able to grow the business uh, pretty nicely. And in a matter of, uh, you know, a few years, three, four years, we were in the millions of uh, yearly revenues. And this was largely based on uh, trying to keep our open source properties and ecosystems strong, investing heavily into these uh, open source tools like Wireshark and WinPickup, but at the same time building products that would uh, be at the periphery of this ecosystem, like uh, USB adapters for Wi-Fi packet capture. So in other words, uh, solutions to monitor and troubleshoot wireless networks or devices that you could plug into data center networks and could collect traffic at high speeds for a long time so that you could go investigate and understand what the problems are. So mm. we started building these products and we were at the point uh, still without any kind of investment. So independent company generating revenue, growing pretty nicely. Uh, the team at that point was uh, 20 or 30 people. As you can imagine, uh, we were a pretty nice acquisition target. We received uh, uh, several offers and we always decided to pass because uh, we were having fun doing what we were doing, you know. When a company called Riverbed, based in San Francisco, came and knocked to our door, that was different because uh, the founder of that company, uh, called Steve McCann, was uh, also one of the pioneers in our industry. And uh, when he was in school, actually, he wrote some uh, uh, seminal pieces of software and some seminal papers, uh, for example, related to TCP dump and lead pickup and this kind of stuff that was really like uh, how I was formed, you know, as an engineer. So I thought uh, the 
opportunity to work with him and his team and grow the thing together would have been, you know, fun and exciting. And uh, my co-founders shared that opinion. And so we ended up being acquired by Riverbed in 2010. And uh, interesting piece of trivia, since uh, you know, Grant, that you adjusted the baby, uh, this transaction happened truly (laughs) while I was having my twins, my first two kids. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I remember I was, uh, you know, at the hospital (laughs) with Stacy, my wife, and my co-founders were knocking on the door asking me to sign paperwork (laughs) (laughs) because we, we were essentially really at the last inches of the acquisition while we were at the hospital with Stacy, and Stacy was, you know, uh, ready to <laughs> to deliver uh, our twins. So that was definitely a memorable, intense, very intense time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. That's that's hilarious. And, and what were they, were they were they acquiring it because like they saw the opportunity to really scale out these products that you had been building? Was it more about the open source community? What was the most exciting asset for them? I think it's a combination. So uh, Riverbed uh, was at that point uh, a company that had been extremely successful with their primary business, which was uh, when acceleration. So simplifying when you have uh, a network that is connecting, for example, two offices or the data center of an office, you can put these devices at the two ends of the network and they will optimize. They will do compression, they will do optimizations and they will essentially save you bandwidth and so save you money. And they did very well with that product line, extremely well, uh, to the point that they went public in like four years or something like that. And uh, by the time they acquired us, they were looking for essentially differentiate our business and and move into new spaces. And uh, performance management uh, and monitoring and visibility and troubleshooting was one of the spaces. And we brought uh, our product line there. And uh, it was uh, a very exciting and uh, very formative uh, journey for me, for sure. First of all, because as I told you before, for the first time, somebody gave me money to work, which I found to be amazing, you know. But uh, also because uh, I learned a lot by being part, you know, of a team of really skilled people, you know, and of a company that was much bigger than mine. And we we had a really nice success story there because uh, our products uh, essentially were put in the hands of, you know, our Salesforce when we were acquired was tiny, you know, a handful of people. While uh, Riverbed had a solid, structured, widespread, you know, Salesforce uh, and uh, with global reach. So our technology was pretty good. So immediately the revenues of our products skyrocketed. And uh, I remember, you know, by the time I joined Riverbed, the uh, uh, case with our products, we were generating around uh, probably, you know, four or five million dollars of revenue. By the time I left Riverbed uh, two years later, the revenues uh, of the product line were like uh, directionally toward under a million dollars. So a very nice success story there. Wow. A very nice win-win proposition. A very exciting journey because then when you're successful, you know, you get visibility inside the company and you can, you know, you can accomplish stuff. And of course, uh, the merit was everybody in, in, the, in the business unit, but just uh, was, you know, very successful and very fun. And I spent two years there, and those were, you know, two years in which I learned definitely a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. I sort of had a, a slightly similar experience. I'm, I'm guessing that is that where you sort of really picked up what 
enterprise customers wanted and you saw how an enterprise go to market really worked and you sort of saw how like these big organizations and support teams and is that kind of where you got a taste for how to really structure an enterprise software company an enterprise software go to market big big time i mean without that experience without what i learned in terms of what is an enterprise customer what is the journey you know of uh, selling or even of building a product for an enterprise customer what does it mean you know to have a, a lifelong relationship with that customer because at that point already and even more now you know with like uh, the recurrent business models your customer is your partner you know uh, forever and the relationship that you uh, need to establish with the customer and what uh, support is what customer success is what uh, pre-sales and post-sales uh, are all of these I, I learned at Riverbed and I was lucky enough to learn it from one of the best teams and you know that was eye opening. <laughs> I, I had no idea all of this stuff existed. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, it really is. You know, you probably thought, "Hey, I built this great company. We got you know four or five million in revenue. We started from nothing. We look what we've done." And then you kind of watch it in the hands of a bigger company, and they have the full machinery yeah. kind of going, where they know how to roll things out, and their customers know how to sell stuff and position it. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. The machinery is. Uh, Something that uh, I just had no idea it even existed, you know, before. It's probably many people that maybe start with their little companies and then they go into enterprise later, you know. Um, yeah, it's a bunch of stuff, all very important, uh, that uh, needs to operate in harmony, and uh, it's not trivial. Yeah, did you kind of develop any almost like frameworks or? You know, if you distill some of the things you learned, right? Like, were there any kind of key lessons or stories, you know, from that time that, that sort of were, were formative as you moved in to start Sysdig? Many of them. One is what I just mentioned. So the customer journey, right? So hmm. what is, you know, like uh, the journey of you as a software provider and the customer need to do together for the company actually to be successful? The other one is, uh, the role and importance of product management. You know, before that, my products were built more like on instinct. You know, starting from something cool and definitely technology driven, I'm pretty skilled at, you know, identifying gaps, technological gaps and building, you know, maybe exciting stuff around these technological gaps. But that's just a part of the equation. Understanding your customer. Uh, understanding the market, reading the signals, using the right metrics and informing your decisions. Uh, that's all stuff that uh, I learned uh, how to do by essentially observing very good people doing that uh, at Riverbed. Maybe one last thing that I learned, I learned it about myself, which was uh, I am an entrepreneur. So despite loving working for a bigger company, I was really craving just going back and being again, you know, the true owner of my future, which happens only if you have your own company. Very true. Okay, so going back to these two lessons, you know, this idea of product management is funny because I think about, you know, as early founders and early sort of like product people, you know, you have these ideas. And I think you talked about this as identifying the, the gaps, yeah. right? And these sort of like, oh, this is a technical gap and we could do something cool here. 
which is a skill you know upon itself. But then this idea of then taking that and really finding a market opportunity around it, I think is you know a much larger skill, and that's often why companies exist to sort of go find that. So, is there like an example of some of the technology that maybe you sold into Riverbed or even at Sysdig of sort of how you know you had this cool technology, but then the steps you took to really understand the customer or the market or find the right metrics along the way? I need to think because I have so many examples. But to give you an example that is more recent, so I'm, I'm jumping a little bit in history Great. and I'm jumping to the current Sysdig product line. Mm-hmm. But uh, Sysdig offers uh, products uh, to run essentially containerized and Kubernetes and cloud infrastructures in production. And we have uh, uh, a monitoring and visibility product line and we also have a security product line. The security product line is relatively recent. We launched it in 2017, essentially spawned from uh, you know the core technology that Sysdig had developed initially for monitoring and uh, visibility. And uh, when building that uh, product, we talked to, to people, we talked to users, and we did uh, as much market research as we could, and we identified essentially a set of uh, features that we put in the first version of the product. This set of features were revolving more based on you know, my inclination as a technologist on the harder runtime security and protection kind of features. So stuff like uh, anomaly detection, uh, like uh, ability to detect threats for, for containerized uh, infrastructures and so on. And uh, we didn't include initially technology that we consider to be much more trivial and less differentiated, like uh, CI-CD pipeline uh, scanning. So uh, essentially being able to look at your applications as they are built by your continuous integration pipeline mm-hmm. and being able to find uh, anomalies or issues or security vulnerabilities at that level. So we sort of snubbed that feature <laughs> because uh, uh, it was not very differentiated and it was sort of too easy. And we started selling the product and the, the product started selling pretty nicely. But uh, immediately, you know, the users uh, started uh, screaming to having also the less sexy functionality because you want the sexy stuff, but you absolutely also want to have the checkboxes. Otherwise, the product is not fully useful for you. So we had to scramble, you know, modify our trajectory and go and include you know, the scanning stuff, the non-sexy stuff. And the moment we did the release, the product exploded, you know, exploded overnight. So that taught me that, uh, first of all, listen to your customers. <laughs> Try to do possibly as early as possible, uh, even before you start building. But if you cannot do that, maybe because you don't have the resources, keep listening, you know, uh, and keep bringing this information and inform your decision as effectively and quickly as possible after the product is out so you can quickly modify your roadmap to consistently match what you're hearing. And that can make a huge, huge difference. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm glad you touched on Sysdig because I think that's we should jump there and then maybe we'll come back to some of these other things you learned along the way as well. But let's talk about it. So you said the final thing you learned was you're an entrepreneur and working for a bigger company isn't really... You know your style, so 
you know, talk about what inspired you to to launch Sysdig. What was the aha moment, and you know, and how did it go? I think that uh, in every field, but especially in enterprise, opportunity comes at uh, industry inflection points, right? Because uh, it's uh, uncommon to convince this enterprise to replace this tool with something else that is marginally better. At the same time, when something new happens, when uh, physical servers become virtual machines, when a data center becomes a cloud, when software that is packaged, you know, with an operating system becomes a container, those are moments of radical change where you can find an insertion point. So uh, I left Riverbed in uh, 2012 and I took a little bit of a break, but uh, uh, around the time, first of all, cloud computing was in its phase of explosion, you know? And uh, a company, uh, a little pass provider called uh, Dot Cloud was being renamed into Docker and the container revolution was born. So uh, that was really, you know, coinciding almost exactly with me essentially uh, living in Riverbed and looking for new adventures. So the impetus for me was uh, take what uh, I learned before the type of functionality and technology from an industry that I had uh, helped uh, shaping and uh, realizing that that kind of uh, technology, despite being very useful, despite clearly having a value for the enterprise, uh, realizing that it was not going to be applicable anymore because uh, there was a technological shift that was uh, making it... uh, architecturally not really applicable. And at the same time, this technological shift would uh, generate a, you know, a new greenfield market that uh, was big enough for a new player to essentially, you know, go and, uh, and grab that market. So a mix of uh, technology opportunity and greenfield in the market. And I thought, you know, this sounds exciting. Let's see if we can do something. Yeah. I mean, so. Well, I think we first met out of DockerCon, but I think we met someone from your team at a CoreOS event, you know, just around the founding, you know, it was oh, like yeah. very, very early containerization. CoreOS, yeah. yeah, the conference, yes. CoreOS Fest, right, exactly. That was, uh, yeah, 2015, I believe, yes. Yeah, so, you know, you'd started the company a couple of years before, and, you know, you were really kind of getting things, you know, off the ground at yeah. that point around containerization. Like, what made you think? Like you know, it's interesting. I think we look at it now, and it's pretty obvious that you know the containerization and Kubernetes have shifted the market, probably in an order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude more than we expected. But like, why were you confident that this was a technology shift that was worth building a company around? I was not confident at all. You know, I mean, I I I, I, I was. <laughs> Projecting conviction, you know, to the to the external world, but the reality is, uh, is you make a bet, you know, and uh, that, in my opinion, is uh, the key moment when when you approach the market the way I just described. You know, there are many ways to to go to market, but when you are essentially looking for a major inflection in a big industry like enterprise IT, you need to jump 
early and you need to make a bet early before everybody else is seeing it, right? So containers at that point, you know, especially pre-Kubernetes, you know, you remember the times when, yeah, it was just, you know, Docker uh, and then Mesos came <laughs> and then Kubernetes came. It sounded very exciting. It sounded uh, technologically the right approach, you know, and uh, and the approach that should be used in the future. But uh, uh, it was absolutely a bet. And, uh, you know, part of being an entrepreneur is making informed bets. Of course, you don't want to make stupid bets, but uh, still you are making bets and uh, there's an intrinsic element of luck, you know, and uh, containers went exactly where we predicted, probably surpassing our predictions. And it's easy now, you know, and I, and I should probably, you know, come here to you and present myself as the genius visionary that saw this be- before everybody else. But in honest truth, I made, I made an early bet on something that uh, felt like it, it had potential of being, you know, like a, a radical change in the market and, uh, and that bet fortunately paid off. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's funny because I think the, you know, it kind of matters who else is betting alongside of you, right? I think part of the reason that this has become so successful is because the ecosystem is here. So, you know, because containers existed and companies started betting on it and Google bet on it with Kubernetes and open sourcing that, like it then opens up the market even more and then more people bet on it and Red Hat bets. It's like everybody kind of, you know, starts to back it and it, it gains momentum and sort of becomes self fulfilling. Yeah. And philosophically, for sure, uh, around those days, I was more interested in being the, Leader in a uh, tiny market with opportunity rather than a little player into a much bigger market, but uh, with less growth opportunity. So that was the philosophy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as well, right? Because it's, I mean, maybe there's a different way to do it, but, you know, I think growing a company as the market is growing feels like the easiest way to do it because. The large competitors are sort of scared away from these tiny markets, and that for you, you're like, well, the market's bigger than my company is, so there's room for me to grow. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, I believe that this market will continue to grow in the future. And then if I'm right, I'll be able to take up as much space as it grows. If you're right, by the time your competitors realize this market is important, you've already taken off. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, one of the bets was on you know containerization and you know eventually Kubernetes. Were there other bets that were kind of part of your early thesis? You're like, you know, maybe it was the world will use more apps or just like anything else that was kind of part of the story. Yeah, I would say from the technology point of view, nowadays they call it shift left, right, or DevOps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a general way, uh, the CI/CD pipeline becoming more and more important, more and more like the center around which you build software. So a higher level depiction of this is uh, traditional software was built in a monolithic, giant, you know, pieces of code that were released uh, in a pretty manual way every six, 12, 18 months. Nowadays, software is split into components, microservices, built continuously. So every time a developer makes a change in the code, the code is built 
and released automatically. It's built, it's tested, and then it's released. So describing this nowadays is like uh, absolutely normal, you know? No one would be <laughs> crazy uh, enough to build software in a different way. But when we were talking about, uh, you know, five, six, seven, ten years ago, that was absolutely not the norm yet. So uh, this movement of, uh, let's say, DevOps and CICD and Shift Left and microservices uh, is... Uh, another big bet that we did uh, from the technology point of view. So uh, the Cisdic product line is uh, not only specialized in, let's say, containers and Docker and Kubernetes, but in everything that has to do with uh, like the way you architect and structure modern software, especially modern software that runs on the cloud. That's another conscious bet that we made early on during the life uh, of Cisdic, and that still drives you know, our strategy nowadays. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as well. Sort of this focus on DevOps and sort of the move towards cloud native, you know, both architecture as well as deployment targets, that makes a ton of sense to me. And saying we're going to build towards those things and build the tooling that sort of captures those trends and build a business on top of those. And the pattern is the one that I was uh, mentioning before, you know, identify something that uh, has the potential to be revolutionary. Yeah. And make uh, the existing tools that people use not functional anymore. Uh, CICD, so e- even intuitively, even if you're not into writing and shipping software, it's intuitive that, uh, uh, you know, tools that are designed to whatever, you know, secure or visualize software that is released every 18 months are very different, radically different from tools that are designed to do the same with software that is shipped 20 times a day, yeah. you know? So clearly, if uh, a change in that direction happens, then people will need new solutions and will need new vendors. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I didn't know that there was going to be multiple here, but I, I sort of assumed there would, because I, I sort of have a, a belief that any decent company is actually making multiple bets, right? You're saying, I think that these four things will be true in the future, and if like three of those four things are true, like you might build like a, a hundred million dollar company. If four of them are true, you build a billion dollar company. And if you know two of them are true, you get acquired for you know twenty million dollars. You know, and if one of them is true, you're, you're out of business. And if zero of them are true, like you know, you you've literally just gone the opposite direction of the entire ecosystem, and everyone wonders what you did wrong. But that that sort of you have to have a. It's more than just one bet. It's you have to place a couple bets and sort of predict the future. Does that map onto what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially if uh, you have uh, the ambition of building the company of a certain size, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Let's say in order to generate, you know, a billion dollar company, your predictions about multiple things in the future need to be pretty accurate. Yeah. Yep. Right. And you need to kind of constantly tune those predictions as things become more clear, right? And sort of keep making predictions. That is constant. That never stops. Yeah. That happens always, uh, or at least in my experience, that that's happened always on a weekly basis, you know? Not even on a monthly basis, but uh, yeah, especially when you're working on the bleeding edge uh, in uh, ecosystems like the cloud native one, there's really, you know, something new every day, there's a new technology every day, there's a new uh, direction every day, there's a new cloud every day. 
So it's constant, constant, constant re- refinement. But the initial assumptions are still important. You know, it's like chaos theory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you believe that the not trajectory, but sort of that, you know, you were talking about this cadence of the every day in the cloud native space, there was like a new project, a new thing, a new like I felt like it was very hard to keep up with. Do you feel like it's stabilized a bit in the last like you know year or two? So I feel like it's uh, a wave on top of each other, mm. right? So some things stabilize, like uh, we we were remembering uh, things like uh, a Coros Fest, you know, in two thousand and fifteen. At that point, it was uh, absolutely not clear if, uh, first of all, the container market would have been a, a big market at all. But even assuming it would be, there was uh, Kubernetes, there was uh, Docker Swarm, there was Mesos, and uh, all of them... I mean, I think even at that point, CoreOS had one called Fleet, I think, right? So yes. like, you know, OpenShift wasn't yet Kubernetes. Was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was so much in flux, you know? So that part of the uh, ecosystem is... Uh, Stabilized quite a bit thanks to the fact that Kubernetes and the stack around Kubernetes has uh, become the winner and is the default one. So from the point of view of like the orchestrator, we are in a much more stable place, but there's uh, something new going on all the time. Like, I don't know, network meshes, tooling uh, around it. Uh, and uh, I don't know, like, uh, you know, SysDig is active in the security space. So uh, anything you know related to security in the Kubernetes ecosystem mm. and the Falcons and Opas uh, and uh, and all of these tools, you know, there's something new every day. There are new ideas. There's a continuous <laughs> uh, innovation and continuous adoption of uh, new tools. Uh, you know, the Prometheus and Open Telemetry, Open Census. There, there's still even in the visibility space, which is the other area where SysDig is active. Uh, there's uh, Still quite a bit of stuff going on. So it's almost like as the fundamental base pieces stabilize and slow down a little bit, the pieces on top of them, you know, there's always something new that, that happens and uh, that accelerates. Yeah, that's a great point. So you talk about these platform shifts, you know, that sort of come about, you know, I think about that, that sort of shift in technology that creates an opportunity for a company. As some of those stabilize, that allows the companies and the ecosystem around it to sort of even go faster. I think you know a lot of folks were on the sidelines waiting to come into the cloud native ecosystem until there was kind of a clear winner. Um, but now the sort of innovation is happening a little bit higher in the stack in different sides like security or I guess like tooling. Or you're saying just anything beyond just the standard like the core bits that drive it underneath the hood. Uh, service meshes are a very good example of that, you know? Something with huge promise for the future, almost as revolutionary as, uh, as Kubernetes itself, uh, but uh, definitely still very much in the early stages and with uh, a lot of continuous change coming in the space. Mm. Another area that comes to my mind is uh, containers and Kubernetes in the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. So every cloud provider now is heavily investing in in Kubernetes, and uh, each of them has uh, you know their own flavors. Like for example, the Fargates in AWS and so on. And there's uh, a ton of uh, 
work that is done there and, uh, and the landscape is quite fluid still. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how these evolve, and but the new areas pop up, and that's where new opportunities come in for all of us to sort of investigate and to, to introduce. Yeah, hopefully this gives ideas to listeners to start their own companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's part of this, right? Like hearing about how we think about you know identifying opportunities. This is what part of the goal is, right? Like let's explore how we think about these things. Yeah. So with Sysdig, you know, your initial product, right, was sort of more around. Monitoring and observability—that um, was the core, and you still have that as a product. Yeah. Was it open source from the very get-go, or not? Part of it was open source. So, um, okay. From that point of view, uh, we can say that uh, Sysdig, my second company, is uh, largely an evolution of uh, what I did with my first company, the Wireshark One Case Technologies, reapplying the technology and the lessons of the first adventure to the new world, you know, to the changing world of uh, cloud and, uh, and containers. And uh, the underlying technology in my first company and the underlying actually more than technology data source for my first company was packets, network packets. So the unit of transfer on a wire or wireless, you know, if you're using a wireless network, that unit is not very suitable for the modern world of containers and cloud computing. So what we did was uh, we focused on other data sources and, and we ended up picking system calls. So instead of looking only at the network traffic, a system call is everything that a piece of software does when running somewhere, like uh, opening a file is a system call, communicating on a network is a system call, executing a command is a system call. So all of these signals, we build software to essentially collect them and uh, treat them a little bit like network packets so that you could uh, capture them, you could filter them, you could save them, and so on. So we essentially found a data source that would be suitable and deprecable to the modern world of containers and cloud but we could use the powerful workflows that uh, we knew were working for the previous generation of the industry. And uh, that brought us to the creation of uh, an open source tool called Sysdig, which then gave the name to the company and was the first thing that we released at Sysdig uh, as a company. You could almost describe it as a Wireshark for system calls, and for containers, and for cloud computing. For that reason, we adopted uh, an open source approach, exactly like we did with Wireshark before. Sysdig is uh, still you know, a very popular open source tool, uh, which uh, is broadly used in the community for uh, troubleshooting, forensics, incident response, for uh, containerized uh, infrastructures. This was the core piece of technology and on top of this, we built Sysdig Monitor, which essentially uses the same data collection, the same rich data collection technology, but instead of focusing on the troubleshooting forensics workflows and so on, more like a single machine, single container kind of workflows, Sysdig Monitor is more like a, an end-to-end visibility tool that uh, you deploy on every single machine on every single piece of software and they can collect 
the data from all of these sources in a centralized way and give you metrics, visibility, dashboard, and all of this kind of stuff. So it's almost like uh, the core technology for both products is open source, but then uh, we have an open source tool that is for the community, and then we have a distributed commercial tool, which is uh, commercial and for our paying customers. Right, you followed that same model with the Falco product and project as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And if Sysdig was inspired by a tool like Wireshark, Falco was inspired more by tools uh, like uh, Snort, so intrusion detection systems that were, again, networking, purely networking tools that we evolved to containers. So again, nothing is reinvented, or at least we didn't reinvent anything. We tried to get the best ideas that were working and useful for people in the previous generation, and we essentially did the technological steps to make them useful and valuable in the next generation. Mm, okay, that makes sense to me. And so, yeah, I mean, that's another interesting sort of like framework for thinking about products is, you know, what was useful before and like what's changed and how do we bring this into the new world, right? To me, I mean, that's what I've always done. Yeah. And to me, it's a much more effective and less risky and more potentially successful way to build a business. I'm totally aware that you can go and essentially create a market, create a category by yourself, single-handedly. But uh, identifying a category that is working in a specific area or industry and uh, finding a way to port (laughs) uh, this category, this technology in a different industry is uh, one of the safest and uh, potentially successful ways to do business, especially in the enterprise. Yeah. And then, you know, from an open source perspective, I mean, realistically, Wireshark and the work you did there to commercialize that, that was pretty early in the open source journey. And even when you started Sysdig, I think there was likely much less sort of known about how to build and scale an open source business. You know, there, we didn't have like the HashiCorps and GitLabs that were that were running, you know, these huge companies at that point. So, you know, did you ever consider not doing open source? Was it really obvious to you from the beginning? And then talk a little bit about like sort of what it provides in terms of value to you as a business and how you interact with the community. Yeah. So at this stage, I mean, we're really talking about uh, very very early days of CSD. So at this stage, as an entrepreneur, you have attention between building valuable and differentiated and protectable, I don't know if protectable is a word, but intellectual property. Seems good to me. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And being known by the world, having the world know that you exist. So uh, the intellectual property protection pushes you against open source uh, because... uh, especially if you're building something powerful and valuable and hard, uh, why giving it away, you know, and uh, giving it away to the community, giving it away potentially also to your competitors. The need of having the world know you (laughs) pushes you toward open source because uh, open source is one of the best generators of uh, brand and visibility and virality that one can imagine, especially in enterprise software, you know, especially when you're targeting DevOps, developers, uh, and, and the highly technical audience. So 
to me, uh, reason number one to do open source at that point was like, uh, I'm uh, a pre-series A company. I have big ambitions. No one knows about me. How do I show the world who I am? How do I make the world understand and appreciate what I'm doing? And uh, that's why we decided to release uh, some of our IP, actually the vast majority of our IP, and uh, have uh, open sources they released in 2014. That uh, bootstrapped our company in terms of being known by the world, and that uh, sort of generated, you know, our Series A of funding because the thing went viral. Yeah, it's interesting. So off the back of sort of some open source adoption. You then were able to raise. Did you raise a seed round before that or not? I we did raise a seed round before that. Yes, great. The seed round was uh, in 2013, and uh, the A round came uh, at the end of 2014. Yeah, thanks to the fact that everybody at this point uh, in our segment was talking about us because we had released this uh, very useful and cool open source tool. Great. And then you know you raised the A, you start to build. And then when did you decide that you were, okay, we're really selling the enterprise, we need to get in here and get you know, all these features like role-based access control and you know, on-prem deployment and all these kind of stuff. Like When did that become part of the roadmap? Yeah, that's interesting because uh, my thesis was that uh, containers and Kubernetes being you know, the bleeding edge of the bleeding edge would follow the same pattern that uh, cloud computing followed in terms of uh, penetration. So cloud computing and clouds like uh, like AWS started by being adopted by, you know, startups, small bleeding edge organizations, uh, little rock teams inside the enterprise. And uh, only years and years later, a decade later, they were actually, you know, accepted at scale by most of the enterprises. And there was uh, quite a bit of uh, just a long-term Silicon Valley adoption of cloud technologies uh, before it became mainstream. So we were convinced it would be the same with containers. So we we started by preparing ourselves essentially to sell to small and medium enterprises, actually very small and small enterprises. We found out after going out, uh, you know, in the market and started selling our product, that uh, Kubernetes and microservices were something that was more appealing to bigger organizations, especially the biggest organizations like banks, media companies, television providers, healthcare, these kind of insurances, these kind of, of companies, in addition to the Silicon Valley startups. So as we started going out and, and equipping ourselves essentially to, to sell this and do our steps for product market fit, we were, I wouldn't say caught off guard, but uh, but a little bit surprised by the fact that uh, these started looking more and more like an enterprise business, like a set of technologies that the enterprise would be interested in. So uh, despite starting, you know, early on equipped with, uh, you know, just uh, a go-to-market engine that... Uh, would focus on smaller organizations, we pretty quickly pivoted into uh, bigger organizations as customers because, again, uh, we were pulled into that. I love that. Yeah. So it's, 
it's interesting because you're like that. That was actually a, you know one of these bets that maybe you were initially wrong, but you were able to move fast enough and say, oh, our ideal customer profile is not you know small team. It's actually these much larger organizations who are thinking about you know scale and, and using Kubernetes to manage lots of different services across you know lots of different teams. Absolutely, and uh, definitely, I don't know if I would say a wrong bet or an assumption that seemed to be pretty reasonable uh, at the time that turned out not to be right. And uh, I think it's not uncommon in that phase. And yes, the solution for that is uh, being able to react quickly when an assumption that you've made turns out not to be true. Yeah, and I think it's also likely very helpful that you had spent that time at Riverbed and really learned what enterprises needed and you had been selling to that customer. So I'm guessing, you know, a different founder who didn't have that sort of, you know, real enterprise experience, they think they're going to sell to small businesses like them and these, you know, high growth companies. Mm-hmm. And then they start to realize that the inbound is from these bigger companies and they have no idea how to manage that or sell to it. It's a harder transition. But because you had had the experience at Riverbed, um, I'm guessing you were able to see the signals a little bit faster and react and actually know how to handle those customers, right? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I was saying there would be no SysDig now uh, if I hadn't learned those lessons while at Riverbed, for sure. Yeah, and so let's kind of fast forward a little bit into the companies. You know, now you've been around for a few years, and Falco seems like it's a really important part of the company. And you made a different decision with open sourcing that, in that you didn't just open source it and act as the key maintainers, but you actually donated it to the CNCF, correct? That is correct. And the rationale there is, uh, uh, again, trying to <laughs> read essentially where, where the industry is going and uh, try to make uh, the right bets and assumptions for the future. The bet, the assumption here is that we are going through a radical change in approach to cloud computing. It's almost like a stage two of cloud computing. Stage one was uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, IBM, building their clouds and offering essentially services on top of their clouds. Phase two is uh, this uh, sort of uh, computing stack for the cloud uh, is uh, being uh, created that uh, sort of sits on top of the clouds and acts as uh, a agnostic operating system for the cloud. And uh, uh, the unique, very powerful thing about this stack is that it's completely open and community-driven, which means that uh, the units to run your software, like the container engine, like Docker, the orchestrator like Kubernetes, these are all essentially open source, but also everything that revolves around them, like uh, storage, networking, firewalling, you name it, you know, it's all open source and community driven. So five years from now, 10 years from now, that will be the default stack, which means that in order to be relevant and the winner as a vendor, Five years from now, you will have to be part of the stack because you have contributed, essentially creating the stack. And that happens only 
if you do that with the community. So we sort of realized at SysDig that uh, if we have ambitions to be the security company for Kubernetes and for the cloud, we don't do this. We cannot do this as a single company, but we need to do it by driving this, by being the thought leader together with the rest of the community, by essentially having the technology underneath it being essentially truly part of the Kubernetes stack because it's part of the CNCF. So essentially we took the decision of uh, donating all of this valuable uh, intellectual property to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation so that uh, uh, we can drive this not as a company, but as a community. And we can make sure runtime security is an integral part of Kubernetes and runtime security is based on what we believe is the right technological approach uh, because, you know, we've built it with uh, our conviction. And if the community embraces it, that means we were true. Yeah, I love that. That's actually a really interesting sort of perspective in, in long term, too, which is really important. And it's something that we think about at Replicated, right? Like we donated the project recently called Schema Hero, which isn't core to our business. I think it was, you know, it's sort of this. You know, interesting piece of technology that my co-founder built, and we thought would be really well designed and well suited to be part of the CNCF. But it's interesting to hear how you talk about that and sort of thinking about you know long term, like what what do you want to make sure is sort of aligned with your product vision that's part of this ecosystem? Yeah, and uh, as an entrepreneur, you always need to take into account you know long term play versus short term play, right? So something like an open source approach is again probably damaging in the short term because uh, you uh, release intellectual property that is yours uh, to the community and to your competitors. But uh, it's uh, a winning strategy in the long term, especially in dynamics like the ones where I described, where the stack is becoming open because uh, it allows you to build much better solutions that are much better integrating with the stack and much more embraced by the community. And uh, uh, since the year is, you know, knowingly playing the long-term game, but, uh, you know, what you do heavily depends on what you want to optimize for your company. If you want to be acquired next week, probably that's not the right choice. Yeah, sure. I'm, and I'm guessing, like, potentially some of this was informed by how you saw Prometheus perform Compared to some of the the core Sysdig technologies, is that right? Yeah, with Prometheus, it's interesting because uh, definitely, you know, uh, Sysdig was already offering monitoring tools before Prometheus. But that's an area where uh, it was pretty clear, you know, the community wanted a standard. That's exactly what I was describing. You know, the, the next generation computing stack. Is going to be open and is going to be standard and is going to be driven by the community. So clearly, um, as a, a monitoring vendor, uh, the right choice for us was to embrace this and uh, to try to, you know, work together with the community and at the same time offer something that can sit on top of uh, the standard for monitoring, which is Prometheus, and uh, offer full compatibility on it, but with enterprise uh, functionality. And uh, right now, yeah, uh, the reason why people buy SysDig as a monitoring tool is because, uh, you know, we have the most scalable 
more enterprise ready, more complete monitoring software that is uh, fully 100% compatible and host swappable with uh, what the community offers. So mm. Falco on one side and Prometheus on the other side really uh, sort of uh, are the cornerstone of uh, our strategy and how we are essentially positioning a platform that is uh, ready for the enterprise, but very much based on standards that uh, are open, community-driven, and allow our customers to use us or use you know, a completely home-built solution in a way that is completely compatible. It's interesting. I'm just sort of thinking about like the this evolution of open source, right? And so at first it was like, you know, just even open sourcing stuff was great. And then it was like open source and then actually donate the IP to a you know a foundation. A neutral organization, yeah. Yeah, neutral organization. Like, is there like a, a you know, in five years a thing that is even a step beyond you know a neutral organization. Like I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I'm wondering if you think about the future of open source, you know, going in any direction or the other. I think the present and the future of open source is building communities. Open source in my in my mind means less and less a bunch of software written in some language, and more and more people people that work together to achieve a common goal. This is what's unique you know, in Kubernetes and the modern cloud computing. It's uh, multiple companies, including the pr- cloud providers that are competing with each other, working together on having a standard that is uh, you know, accepted by everybody and, uh, and as interoperable as possible. Open source is not code, and not the license that you use, but it's people, how they work together, how do they influence each other, and how do they coordinate to reach a common goal. And it will be, in my opinion, more and more like that in the future. And that is very relevant for entrepreneurs because uh, more and more the future of enterprise software, and uh, you know, you name it, uh, you were mentioning uh, a company like uh, Hashcorp uh, uh, or, or GitLab. I'm thinking about uh, Kong, which uh, recently raised uh, almost $100 million. I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know, NGNX. I'm thinking about uh, Cassandra. I'm th- all of uh, uh, these uh, uh, companies start from open source, start by building communities, and uh, then they find uh, their way toward uh, essentially commercializing commercial products uh, uh, around that. Yeah, that's great. I, I think that's a really unique perspective, and I, I hadn't even thought about the idea that like it's more and more about the people, less about the code, um, which makes total sense because ultimately, and it's also such an important part about standards and collaboration. Because if we were all just building these projects independently and open. It's not that valuable, but it's the collaboration, it's the consistency. That's right. It's like, and that's what allows communities, that's what allows ecosystems to evolve as well. Is because then, okay, if like I know that there's consistent protocol underneath the hood, like I can place a bet on that platform and then do my thing on top of it, and maybe that's open as well. So yeah, that's really that's a really great point. Exactly, and there are industries where that have traditionally been pretty open, like you know the database. <laughs> 
uh, it's uh, uh, uncommon nowadays to to have a piece of backend, you know, the Redis, uh, MySQL, Cassandra, and so on, uh, Elastic. Uh, to have uh, uh, any of these components, Elastic is a little bit uh, recently, but they are not open source. But there are, at the same time, other industries, for example, the security industry in which SysDig operates, that uh, have been pretty resistant to adopt open source, and they've been more opaque. And I think one of the trends in the future is that this will change. And companies like SysDig that uh, approach security from the open source point of view, starting with uh, community-driven efforts like Falco will become the norm in security as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a, you know, you'll, we'll see more and more open source security companies over the next five, six years as well that, that really disrupt the ecosystem because part of it is that shift left concept, right? Where like mm-hmm. developers are getting more into security, developers expect more open source, but it's also, it's just such a powerful model, right? It's almost an unstoppable force because it's it just keeps rolling and then if the end users prefer it, there's almost like it's just a war of attrition over time. Exactly. Cool. Loris, I, I mean, this has been a really kind of fantastic stroll through your career, you know, the, the insights, the things you've learned, your perspectives. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience? Uh, maybe a, a bit about the future of Sysdig or you know things you're excited about. I don't know, just anything you want to cap it off with. Yeah, uh, future of Sysdig, I, I wish <laughs> I could. But uh, uh, Sysdig at this point uh, is uh, a strong player. I would argue Sysdig is the leading player in uh, security for containers, Kubernetes, and cloud. We have an organization that uh, is uh, uh, growing very nicely. And uh, for the moment, together with my team, I'm uh, still very, very excited to be part of and to keep growing. So, you know, my first company, the Warshare company, Case Technologies, was acquired relatively early on. And it was uh, a great uh, experience, very exciting. We'll see what happens with Sysdig. The future is always unknown. But uh, with this one, my ambition, the ambition of the team is building something, you know, big that can live long and really be a strong leader of the market. And that's what we're doing. And we're coming up with, you know, new features, new functionality, new exciting news uh, on a daily basis. And we hope to be able to do that uh, for still quite a bit of time as our organization grows. The important thing, hopefully, is keeping having fun, and for the moment, I'm having a ton of it. I love that. Yeah, and I and I will echo that. You know, you you do have an incredible team. You know, I've gotten to know the folks over there for the last five six years. You know, we owe you a, a debt of gratitude as one of our early customers. Uh, but this has been super interesting to learn from you and hear your perspectives here. Thank you for coming on the show and, and kind of sharing uh, everything. My pleasure. It was fun. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated. 
where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.